All right. Let's go. I'm going to endeavor to, well, I was going to say keep it short, but I'll endeavor to keep it not too long instead this morning. My name is Rod. Hello. Welcome. Um, just, I remembered one very important announcement, which was not made, um, which I forgot to share with Libby, and that's to do with um, the sour cream and chives crackers that we have today for communion. Um, so it's a, it's a la- yeah, Kitty, Kitty doesn't like them. Um, it's, it's a bit of a lame in-joke from church camp. Uh, so it's good to be psychologically prepared for the fact that Jesus will taste of sour cream and chives this morning. Sorry? Yeah, that's right. You are what you eat. Um, singing was so lovely this morning. I often feel at this point in the service that it'd be great just to say, let's just chat and then go home. But um, unfortunately, I'm paid to talk at you, so I'm going to do that this morning. Um, I'll start with a little prayer. Why not? Loving God, create a spirit. Um, thank you that you're here with us this morning um, in us and around us and within us and we pray as we think and talk this morning about um, the Holy Spirit that you will um, that your spirit might be active in all of us um, bringing life bringing insight um, bringing wisdom bringing guidance um, and we we praise you for the life of Jesus and the way that he um, showed what a, a spirit-shaped life looked like. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Um, so we're going to start. Today we're looking at um, Pentecost. So we're in the middle of a very long Holy Spirit series and uh, we're doing... Um, a month or so on the New Testament. And so today I wanted to focus on um, the day of Pentecost. Uh, so we're going to start by looking at the passage together. Um, I decided not to ask anyone else to read it because there's just way too many crazy place names. Um, so I'm just going to take the bullet for all of us and read it myself. Um, but before I read it, just want to um, to talk for a minute about a conversation I had last week, I think it was with Danielle and uh, Emmanuel, just about um, how we read the Bible. And uh, it just reminded me of one of the themes of our Bible series, which is another of our long series a few, uh, last year I think it was, or the year before. Um, and just one of the things that we talked about with, with the Bible was that um, for so many of us we were brought up to read it um, in a very flat way, that there was one message in every passage, one theme in every story, and that was it. Uh, and one of the things that we explored in our Bible series was the image of the Bible as like a gem, um, and that every time you turn it, you see light from a different facet of that gem. Uh, it's a very, very Jewish way of looking at Scripture. There's the old joke about you get 14 rabbis in a room talking about a passage of the Bible, they'll come up with 15 different interpretations. Um, so as we look at the passage this morning, I guess I just wanted to remind us of that, uh, that when we, we look at Scripture, when we look at stories in the Bible, um, we understand that the Holy Spirit can reveal all sorts of things through those stories um, and that different readers of those stories um, in different places and different times and with different kinds of experiences can derive very different things from those passages. Um, so I invite you to be open this morning to um, whatever strikes you in this passage, whatever leaps out at you. I guess I particularly want people to try to focus on things about this story that they've never noticed before. Obviously, it's possible that this is the first time that you've encountered this story, and so everything will be 
stuff that you've never noticed before. But if this is something that you're very familiar with, a story that you're very familiar with, um, I want you to, um, yeah, look for things that you've never noticed before. Um, maybe a question about the passage that you've never asked yourself before. Um, something about the context of this story that you've never wondered about before. Um, and uh, today we're just going to do it, do it silently. So I'll read the passage and we'll just sit in silence for a minute and you can think about things that have struck you, questions that occur to you, things that you've never wondered before but wonder now. Um, and then I'll read it again and then we'll, we'll move on. Um, so here it is. No, that's not it. Here it is. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, you know those parts, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, you've got to pronounce that correctly, and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. So let's sit for a minute. And as I invited you, what have you never noticed before? What is a question about this passage you've never asked before? What have you never wondered about this story before? I'll just sit in silence for a minute with those questions. For just for a couple of minutes, um, let's see if anyone wants to share their um, thing that they've never noticed before, their question, um, the thing that they have um, never wondered about this story before, but do so now. Um, I want to invite you to try to 
could do that just in, in a single sentence or a single question. Um, not, not to really open it up, but just to get a sense of some of the things that have occurred to people this morning before we move on. Um, or you might want to just hold those things to yourself. That's fine too. Is there anyone that would like to share their question or the thing that they wonder? Some of them thought they were drunk. People thought they might be drunk. I, I'm just interested in those last that last uh, line. Some of them asked a question. The others had a statement. And that made all the difference, I think, to their understanding or their beginning of their understanding. last paragraph where they're talking about some being filled with new wine and, and being sneered at would indicate that the people sneering couldn't understand what they were saying, hence they thought they were drunk. So does that actually imply that the miracle was not in the speaking of the tongues, but the, a lot of these people could understand what was being said? Um, I've read this passage a lot and I can't believe that I've never had a visual of a tongue resting on each person. Um, just because throughout the Gospels the disciples are so slow to get anything Jesus meant, um, I find it amazing that they were open to this experience, that all of a sudden something that had absolutely never happened before, like the Holy Spirit, resting upon them and speaking in a different language and they were actually open to not just doing it in their house but doing it so that people from outside could hear. I think find that pretty amazing. Not to diminish from the miracle of actually people hearing it in all different languages, but there's a couple of language things. One is your native language. The other is actually speaking in a way that you understand and comprehend and actually connecting with each person. And I get the impression from reading this that they did both. I, I had a question. Though they all come together in one place, whether they were expecting something to happen or not or, because it says suddenly a sound like the rush of a violent wind so just i was trying to imagine we're like we're all together in one place for a reason and then suddenly this happened yeah i've just never noticed before the galileans but the galilee is like you know, the backwater country yoga local town and i just wonder about the classism in this about how like these are like this kind of like sign from god and people being like the yokels got it like and these are all kind of sophisticated people from you know all over the world traveling back to jerusalem and these kind of like hick country people who god shows up for and they're kind of like sneering and even the new wine reference like new wine's cheap wine yeah yes bourbon and coke i think i just never noticed how odd it would be, like if if someone here just started speaking, who I know was like an English person, was to speak, start speaking Afrikaans to me. I would also wonder about the sobriety, um, and so that that like shock of realization of someone talking to you in a different language, like that that would astound me. And so I'd never seen myself in that text. It must have been a very open house in that all these people could draw near and hear. That table wins the contribution prize. I was just reminded by Annika's comment that when you're drunk, you can actually speak a foreign language better than... If, if you're sober. So maybe the fact that they were drunk does not cancel out the miracle as well. <laughs> I've actually tested that, and um, there's a bell curve. 
Yeah, at a certain point, your ability sort of drops off again, but... Uh... Oh, oh, cat at the back. We might make cat the last person unless someone's really burning. Um, I've just realised it doesn't actually tell people what they... Oh, they're kind of talking about God's deeds of power, but what are they? what were they actually saying? What were people reacting to, and why? Why weren't people more like scared and weirded out? Like, no, nobody's going. What the hell is going on? Everyone. Some people are saying, "What does this mean?" But they're not going. This is super weird. I'm a bit scared. I, yeah, I wonder the Galileans thing. Whether that comes that's because of their accent. Maybe that they're speaking really fluently, but in a Galilean accent. I had a. a a friend, when I was in Bolivia, I had a friend who had an alter ego called Super Gringo, who um, would, he spoke fantastic Spanish, but he'd do it with a really, really broad American accent. It was quite something, but maybe that's what they're doing, broad Galilean accents. I wonder what they were like. Um, oh, I just had a thought. Oh, that's right, the context. Yeah, so the, um, I guess the next... The next chapter, we have Peter giving a very long sermon. I don't know if it's in all, giving the sermon in all of the languages um, or just the one that he was gifted with. So perhaps only the people from Phrygia understood him. But um, yeah, so I guess that's Luke trying to give us a context of perhaps some of what they were, what they were saying. Um, so today I want to... Um, just leave all of those things open and uh, focus on a couple of things uh, about this passage and the context of this passage that um, that really struck me. Uh, a few weeks or a month or so ago, our lovely friend Michael Frost came over from New Zealand to do a fireside with us about this passage uh, and also about um, the passage where Peter goes to Cornelius and the Holy Spirit visits the Gentiles for the first time. And there were two things that Michael shared with us that I want to share with us, share with you this morning. Um, so apologies to people that were there. Um, but things that I think are really useful for us to reflect on as we think about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Um, the first thing, um, oh yeah, just one other thing. Uh, so these are some statements that Shane uh, produced for us a few weeks ago, kind of summaries of um, things that the Spirit does in the New Testament. So I just sort of put a, throw them up there just for a minute uh, for those listening to the podcast. Just go back a couple of weeks and you can hear them all listed out. Um, but I guess the summary is the one at the top um, that the spirit in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament is hope on the horizon, the sun peeking through the clouds, the eternal possibility of something new breaking in. Um, but of all those statements, the one I want to focus on is, is this one, that the spirit in the New Testament messes up our structures and categories and gives birth to a new family where everyone belongs. A... Um, New Testament scholar with the fantastic name of Ben Witherington III, um, uh, and again, this is this is Michael. What Michael shared with us um, a few weeks ago talks about Luke and Acts. So Luke Acts is really one book written by Luke, um, and obviously the Luke part is before Jesus exits the story, um, and the Acts part is kind of from when he exits and on. And um, Ben, let's just call him Ben, uh, has this kind of beautiful, beautiful sense of how the two relate. And he says that in Luke, what we see is um, vertical universalization. Um, so that's the up and down arrows. That what we see in, in the book of Luke is um, what we see prefigured by Mary in the Magnificat when she says that God has brought down the rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. And that this sets the pattern for the whole of Luke, 
where Jesus through his ministry is breaking down all the kind of vertical divisions that existed in um, Jewish society of the time and seeking to welcome in all those who have been excluded from Judaism, who've been excluded from the people who have been um, kept on the margins or kept outside of um, the people of God and welcomed them in, while at the same time challenging those who have been doing the excluding. And so we see this throughout Luke. We see Jesus seeking to welcome in the possessed, seeking to welcome in lepers, seeking to welcome in the paralyzed, um, the sinful, welcome in women. Um, So we see in in Luke 10, the story of Mary learning from Jesus and Martha asking Jesus to tell Mary to come and help her. And Jesus saying, Mary's doing a better thing. Um, There's this radical um, inclusion of of women. Um, All the stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin, the lost son. The amazing story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's such an incredibly subversive thing to have a story where you name the poor man and you don't name the rich man. Um, And again, time and time again, we see Jesus raising up the humble and bringing down the powerful. Um, The inclusion of widows, the inclusion of tax collectors, and the inclusion of children. Um, The incredible affirmation that we see of children. And not, not only that they are included in the kingdom of God, but that they are in a way, a model for us of what it is to be part of the kingdom of God. So in Luke, we see Jesus kind of opening up the kingdom of God to all and collapsing all those vertical divisions. And what Ben Witherington III says happens in Acts is that this vertical universalization becomes horizontal. Um, And so the kingdom of God is then offered to those outside of Israel, outside of the Jewish people. And that begins um, with this passage. It begins with this incredible miracle at Pentecost. And all of these languages being spoken, languages from the whole of the known world at that time. Um, But it continues. So as we read through Acts, um, we see the inclusion of the Samaritans in the next couple of chapters, Um, an inclusion that obviously is prefigured in Jesus with the, uh, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in the next chapter, we see the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, So this this incredible inclusion of of a eunuch, again, something prefigured in Isaiah when Isaiah says that eunuchs will be welcomed into God's temple and into the people of God. Um, And then the story of of Cornelius, uh, where Peter is given this vision of uh, a blanket with all sorts of different animals on it and is told that he can kill and eat any of these animals, even though most many of them are unclean as far as the Jewish law goes. Um, and having had this vision, he then receives messengers from the household of Cornelius, a Gentile, um, asking him to come and speak to them. And uh, he puts two and two together and realizes that this is the Holy Spirit saying to him that uh, it's okay for him to visit a Gentile home and that the Holy Spirit is doing something in the hearts of Gentiles and not just in the hearts of Jews. And this continues then with the, the, the mission of people like Paul and Barnabas going out into the Gentile world. And it, it kind of climaxes in Acts 15 when the whole church council gets together and decides what is to be expected of Gentile believers. And are they going to be expected to follow Torah? Are they expected to be circumcised or, or not? Um, and they come to this incredibly radical decision that they're not going to ask these Gentile converts to become Jews in terms of the law and in terms of circumcision, that 
They're only going to ask them to abstain from um, meat sacrificed to idols and from sexual immorality. And, you know, we visited this passage a bunch of times over the years, but it's just, it's, it's breathtaking how simple the way this is framed is. That's just, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit to only ask you these things. This complete overturning of what they understood to be Jewishness and what it meant to, to stand in solidarity with God, uh, this radical break with the past, and yet they just say, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit to only ask these things of you. So the two, these two forms of universalization, where every tier of Jewish society is included in the kingdom of God and then every group outside of the Jewish people is included in the people of God. But the, the important, this will lead us into our, the second thing I want to talk about, but the, the important thing to, to think about with this universalization is what kind of universalization are we talking about here? Because there are kind of two, there are two ways that, um, that we can create this one culture, this one kingdom. And the, the first way is effectively empire and colonization. So the first way that you can create a universal culture is by spreading out from the center and gobbling up all the cultures around you and forcing them to speak your language and forcing them to adopt your culture as the price of becoming part of the one people of this empire. A unity that spreads out from the center and a unity that imposes itself on those around it. But as we, as we can see in this Pentecost story that sets up this whole process, something different is at play here, a different kind of universalization, a different kind of, of kingdom, a kingdom that preserves distinction, a kingdom that preserves language and culture, that doesn't spread out in some uniform way from a center, but that erupts in different places, kind of more like this. I tried to think, and there's, there's no really good way of, of picturing what the Holy Spirit is doing in this process, but I, I thought this image of all these overlapping ripples that as they intersect, become this huge area of, of movement and life. This came close to what we see going on in the book of Acts. It's not human beings from some kind of center spreading out and colonizing, but it's the Holy Spirit saying to people, I'm doing something over here now, and now I'm doing something over here, and now I'm doing something over here, and so you need to catch up. You need to align yourself to these eruptions of life all around you. Does that image make sense as a, as a contrast, I guess, to colonization and empire? It's something that, that people have, are not controlling, but in a sense are um, seeking to align themselves with. Um, and again, it's something that is symbolized really powerfully in, in the miracle at Pentecost. Because the second thing that that Michael said that had never occurred to me before was that um, according to, to scholars of this period, all of these Jews from all around the known world would have had a common language. They would all have spoken Aramaic, Greek, perhaps. So it would have been possible to address all of them in one language. But that's not what happens. So this miracle is unnecessary from a language point of view, from a communication point of view. It's completely unnecessary. They could have spoken to everyone present in a shared language, either that, that historical language of Aramaic or the kind of language of empire, which was Greek. But instead, 
the Holy Spirit enables them to address each person in their first language, to address each of them in the context of their birth culture, to affirm this multiplicity of languages and cultures rather than impose one language and one culture on this diversity. I found the idea of that, the unnecessary nature of this miracle um, and the fact that it points to something beyond communication, utterly compelling. It's not about being able to share a message. It's about including and affirming multiple languages, multiple ethnic and cultural identities. Um, again, Michael talked about the fact that the people of the Jewish diaspora, the, the Jews spread ar around the, the surrounding nations, gathered in Jerusalem at this time, were undoubtedly shaped by the linguistic, social and cultural context in which they lived and within which they had often been located for centuries. So the unmistakable inference to be drawn from this miracle is that the preservation of many tongues is an indication that God values and affirms this diversity of languages and cultures. And more importantly, that God wants us to connect to people through their language and culture, not by asking, asking them to adopt our own, not by asking them to, to adopt some central God-ordained language and culture. Which I think for us means that if we want to talk about the kingdom of God with other people, we have to learn their language first. Otherwise, we're using the logic of empire to build the kingdom of God, which is a contradiction in terms. So at this point, I just want to ask who here has learnt a second language or a third language as an adult? Um, who's had the experience as an adult of learning a second language and particularly needing to use that language in, in another country and in another context? And I'm interested to hear kind of what you learnt from that process, but particularly what the emotional impact was um, of that experience of learning the second language and then trying to use it in a different country or a different culture. Has anyone had that experience? Yeah. You wanna, you wanna talk about it? I mean, you can have, have a moment to think about it, yeah. And behind. Um, I had the feeling of just profound helplessness. Uh, just the most basic things becoming very, very difficult, like a kind of childish and uh, being praised by people for my language ability that was very subpar. Uh, again, feeling very childish and, and helpless. My second language is Hindi, and I've spent quite a bit of time trying to learn that since I was about 18 years old and have spent time immersing myself in India at certain points of my life. And I think the thing about learning the second language is it enables you to really connect with people and um, just their response is so different than if, I mean, a lot of Indians speak English, so it's not necessarily a, a barrier of communication, um, but there's this such greater connection that you can get by making the effort to have actually learned their language and they'll respond, the way they respond is very different than even just conversing in English, which often they can do. Anyone else? Yeah, I learnt French when I was in my 30s um, and then went over and studied in it and that was such a, a um, feeling of humiliation, being in a class and normally having the ability to articulate exactly what I want to say and then suddenly just not knowing when by the time I kind of had formulated a sentence they'd moved on already. So, um, but then also that thing of people just appreciating you trying. Um, but then oddly, I also feel like music is a language that is 
another language that we don't really think about, as, but it's a language to connect. Um, and so I think there is some that something that surmounts um, words as well. Claire and I spent um, half a year learning some Italian before we, we went on a trip to Italy, um, which when, when we were in Italy was helpful, but it was also a little bit humbling just because, you know, they'll very quickly pick up on the fact that you only speak a little bit of Italian and they'll just switch to English and uh, speak extremely fluent English to you. And, um, yeah, just that little bit humbling to have them to, to realise that they're so much more advanced than you in that regard sort of thing. Um, but the really humbling thing was we actually... We spent most of our time in Italy, but we spent a few days in Switzerland before that. And um, we sort of like landed in Switzerland and went, oh, did anyone think to check what language they speak here? And we hadn't. Um, so I Googled it and found that they have four national languages. Um, and so everywhere you went, they would just come up to you and just basically ask which one of the four languages that you wanted, they wanted, uh, you wanted them to speak to you in. And that's just staggering sometimes to just, you know, have, have this person come up and just, you know, like pick one of four languages and I'll fluently converse in it with you, like... How can I how can I connect with you? Like you let me know, and I can do it in so many different ways. And I'm just standing here going, "Cool," and yeah, just sort of realizing that I have such a limited worldview because of that. I've spent a few months in um, Hungary and Germany, and did a very very simple. Um, almost poor attempt at learning the languages. But um, I had the privilege to stay with families during those times. So I picked up very, very basic conversational. Um, so I couldn't express like deep feelings, but I had just the right amount to connect to somebody. And what I found was, um, and, and there were very small villages, like 400 people in them. And what I found that was all you need to do was say a few words in the language. And what happened was the hospitality of the people just opened up enormously once you said that. And I became, like, I felt like I was, I was part of the community, even though I couldn't speak fluently. So it swapped from, like, the language was just sort of like a bridge to, to their heart, so to speak. And then it, it swapped to, like, the universal language of, of music and food. So their hospitality sort of came back with food. And it, it didn't matter then that we spoke different languages. Um, already there was a, an acceptance and a coming together. And, and I'd go back there in a heartbeat. Uh, it was was really, really great experience. Thank you. And what came out so clearly in those comments was that there are some incredibly positive things that come out of learning another language and um, that capacity to connect and the way people feel so um, so excited to to hear you speaking in their language and making that effort but there's also a kind of a a negative and challenging side to it as well that that sense of being humbled and or, or humiliated by your incapacity um certainly that was was my experience i spent um a little bit of time learning spanish before i went and spent nine months in in south america and then um my Spanish improved and I came back and then I, I learned some more and then I went to, to Central America and um, my experience probably, yeah, kind of covered the full range of, of the kinds of things that people have talked about this morning. But there was there's one particular story that really s stayed with me or an experience that really stayed with me. Um, and that was um, staying with a in a homestay in Costa Rica. And um, there was a, a mother and, and three daughters in that household. And one morning I was having breakfast and just chatting to the mother in the family. And um, she was asking me about my history and I was sort of telling her that I'd been married and then um, my, my marriage had ended. And it, she established that it was, it was not something that I had wanted, but that something that, that my wife had decided um, and she, she immediately said to me, um, perhaps, perhaps if you were a more confident 
person. Um, perhaps if you'd had more kind of strength in the way that you express yourself, she wouldn't have left you. <laughs> and of course, my immediate thought was, you do not know me in English. You have no idea the person that I am in my first language. But years down the track, when I look back on that experience, I think that that event was actually an incredible opportunity for a straight white guy to have access to the heart of God <laughs> and what, what God's experience is like seeking to communicate with us. Um, the incredible risk that God takes in seeking to communicate through human language to us, the risk of experiencing exactly what I experienced, um, humiliation, kind of ridicule, being profoundly misunderstood and mocked. We talked in the past about um, the biblical scholar Peter Enns talking about the Bible as God allowing God's children to tell God's story. And I think that's exactly, exactly right. That what we see in Scripture is people within the limits of their culture and within the limits of their language trying to make sense of their encounter with God and constantly falling short in their representation of God. Constantly misrepresenting God, constantly misunderstanding or under-understanding. Um, and this leads to God being represented to others in a way that they have contempt for or they mock God. But that that is something that God is prepared to undergo for the sake of connection and communication. And I think if we want to follow God, we can't avoid the same kinds of experiences. Um, Susie and I this week watched the uh, Brene Brown Netflix special, which I would highly recommend. Love a bit of Brene. Um, the, 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 the moment that was most powerful for me was when she talked about um, working with organizations and how people at the top of organizations, they want to talk about racism and they want to talk about gender and they want to talk about sexuality and they want to address these difficult issues, but um, they don't really want to have uncomfortable conversations. They really want to avoid discomfort if possible. And she said, that is the voice of privilege. That is the voice of privilege. The only people that think it's possible to live a life where you avoid difficult conversations and you avoid discomfort are people of incredible privilege. Because people on the margins have no choice but to have difficult conversations, to feel uncomfortable all the time. So if we want to side with the marginalized, if we want to side with the excluded, and if we want to represent God in any way, then we have to be open to having difficult conversations, being uncomfortable. But most importantly, we need to be open to learning other languages, to encountering other people's cultures and experience at a deep, deep level it's only then that we earn the right to speak into their lives at all. Only then. So I want to leave us um, this morning with a question. Whose language, is, whose language is the Spirit calling you to learn so that you can teach them and, more importantly, learn from them about the kingdom of God? Whose language is the Spirit calling you to learn so that you can teach them and, more importantly, learn from them about the kingdom of God? Because we've been talking about actual languages this morning, but the obvious implication is that we don't necessarily need to be talking about actual languages, but we're talking about 
otherness, difference, um, people, people around us whose um, experience is profoundly different from us um, and who we might be being called to, um, to submit ourselves to, um, to learn from so that we can earn the right to speak into their lives. So I'm just going to give you a minute, just a minute of silence to reflect on that question before we move to communion. Let's let's now move to communion. There you go. Just going to leave you with a very important question. What do you think, Hemi? <laughs> um, so many of my stories start with the phrase. I was listening to a podcast the other day, um, where they were discussing this question of Did Jesus die for the Wookies? Um, if there are other kind of sentient beings out there on other planets, did Jesus die for them? Um, what planets exactly? I'm talking about planets. You love planets, don't you? What's your favorite? Mars. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, yeah, did did Jesus die for all those other for the Wookies and all the other sentient beings on other planets throughout the cosmos? Um, and the answer was no. That, um, as we were saying before, that would be that would be the logic of empire and colonization of the human beings being at the center of the cosmos and um, us having the heart of things and sending it out to all of these other empires. And that um, their answer was, if if Pentecost is what it seems to be, then there must have been a Wookie Christ. <laughs> so as we come forward for communion today, we're going to yeah, reflect on the Wookiee Christ. <laughs> We've lost Ben. Sorry? Yeah, exactly. Jesus will find you. Um Reflect on the Wookiee Christ in the sense that, um, yeah, in Pentecost we we see this affirmation of difference. We see this affirmation of a Holy Spirit that that does what the Holy Spirit wants to do wherever the Holy Spirit wants to do it, and we can't control it, and we are not at the centre of things. Um, and we as human beings are not the centre of things. Um, so let's reflect on that as we come forward. Um, for those who are new, our tradition is to um, to come forward only if you want to. You don't have to um, to crack the um, again. Remember sour cream and chive crackers with the knuckle of love, um, and take a small section of it and a cup of juice. And then when we're all ready, um, in a little circle, I'll pray, and then we'll eat and drink together. Yeah. So come forward, take a bit of cracker and a bit of juice.
Let's pray then. Loving God, we thank you for Jesus, the way he came to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I pray that you will help those of us um, of great comfort and privilege to, to look for, to accept that we have to have experiences of discomfort. We have to have experiences of feeling foolish and childlike, of being misunderstood, of submitting to, to understanding and learning other people's language and culture. If we are to ever understand your heart, the heart of Jesus. So I ask for those um, holy humiliations that allow us to feel you. But I also pray for those who feel like they are the ones on the margins. They are the afflicted. They are the ones who experience uncomfortable conversations every day, who feel unseen, misunderstood every day. I pray that your spirit may comfort them. And I pray that this place might be a place of safety and comfort where they feel understood, where they feel seen, and where they can um, feel loved as they are. We pray this in Jesus.